doing? Good. Me too. Hey, my name is Tom Nelson. I, I do have the privilege of staying in this spot here, um, of, of teaching uh, on our teaching team, being a part of our Tuesday morning meetings where we, we get together, talk about the text, talk about the sermon, think about, uh, as a congregation, what do we need? What, what are the truths from uh, a given text that, that we want to really put forth on, uh, on Sunday mornings? Um, so I get to do that during the week. Also during the week, I am on campus full-time, uh, walking alongside uh, UC Davis students, uh, coming alongside them, meeting with them in groups one-on-one, discipling them, helping them understand more of, of who God is and what Jesus has done for them, helping them share their faith, teaching the word there on Friday nights. It's a real privilege. Um, hey, this is week four of our Greater Than series, the Book of Philippians. And our series goal, you guys have heard this before, but our series goal is this. As we grow in maturity as a church, we joyfully surrender everything to know Jesus more. We are going to be in the scriptures today, and there are Bibles available. If you came here and you happen to forget your Bible at home, or maybe you just showed up and said, wait, I don't own a Bible, we want you to have one. And we have Bibles on the tables, Kevin's getting up. If you just raise your hand real quick and you want a Bible to take home as your own, See Kevin. He'll hook you up. And, and don't return it at the end of the service. Keep it. Write your name on it. It is now yours. Title for today. Joy that leads to obedience. Obedience that leads to joy. I, uh, I had the privilege of kicking off our Philippians series week one. And uh, during that sermon, I kind of poked fun at the fact that I don't like thinking of and creating sermon titles. Okay? And it feels uh, kind of laborious to me. And, and um, so, of course, this week, as I'm preparing the sermon, Roly calls me up and says, Tom, you got a title yet? And I said, I don't have a title yet, Roly. But I also happen to be reading in the book of Matthew at the time. And in Matthew 5, there's this Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, in chapter 5, he's telling his broader group of disciples, he says, You know what? If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him your left also. If someone sues you and takes your tunic, give to him your cloak also. If someone compels you or forces you to walk a mile with him, walk a second. So, so really loosely, in the spirit of Jesus' own words, when Roly asks you for a sermon title, you give him two, right? <laughs> joy that leads to obedience, obedience that leads to joy. Both biblical, both represented here in the text, and uh, I'm really excited to... Um, to go through it with you guys. Our text for today is Philippians 2, 12 to 30. And I'll tell you early on right now, we have so much to cover, I will most likely not make it to the end of the text. I'll make it to the end of the sermon. Um, but I, we probably won't make it all the way to verse 30. And so um, if you didn't know, uh, we do have a Philippians kind of a series reading plan, which is on the app. So feel free to go there, feel free to check it out. Um, you know, as we're preaching through this book, we want you guys to be reading through it every week as well, so that what we're sharing on Sunday isn't new information, but it's just a, a reinforcing and, and maybe bringing to light certain aspects of the text of what you've already been reading during the week. All right, a lot of ground to cover. Let's get started. Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. So then... Okay, we made it. Let's stop there. So then, 
we need to stop there because whenever you read in the scriptures, so then, or, or therefore, or in light of this, you need to stop and say, well, in light of what? So then, why? Therefore, what's it therefore? You need to look back and understand what is it that he's talking about, okay? And, and I'll, I'll share this just kind of as a caveat. You know, we are looking at the book of Philippians over eight or nine weeks, and each week, we kind of look at a discrete chunk of text, and we say, well, here's the, here's the, the application, here's the takeaway, here's, here's the lesson to learn. And then we move into next week, and we look at another discrete chunk and say, well, here's, here's the moral, here's the, here's the application, here's the lesson to learn. And we're going to do that nine times throughout this series. But we can make a grave mistake if we treat what is a continuous letter that would have been initially read and heard as a whole and try to falsely kind of parcel it up into different lessons and different chunks and different things to understand. When this was read aloud in the church in Philippi, they read it as a whole and they understood it as a whole so that themes that were being developed in chapter one were understood alongside the things they were hearing later in this letter as it was read. Think about it this way. Um, if, if you had a friend that, that went away on a long journey, someone who you were very fond of, and you received a letter from them that was a long, lengthy letter, you wouldn't sit down and say, all right, well, this week, I'm going to read the first eighth. And you read it, and you're thinking, wow, that's really great. I know so much about them. You say, next week, I'm going to come back and read the next eighth. You wouldn't do that. And unfortunately, that's, that's the way that we are approaching this, this text. And unfortunately, our Sunday morning gatherings, I, I think that's the best way to do it. But let's not forget, this was read to a congregation as a continuous letter. Okay? So then, Jeff gave a great sermon last week looking at Jesus, looking at this Christ hymn, this first century hymn about Jesus, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And if you go back and you were to read that, you would look at every, all seven of those verses talk about Jesus, either by name or by pronoun. It is clearly all about him. We looked about how he, how he, he lowered himself, right? He talked about the kenosis, the emptying of his, of his perfection to become one of us, ultimately to, to die for us as a model for us of unity, of humility, we look, about the, we look at the, the, the incarnation or the, the condescension of Jesus to be one of us, but we all talked talk about his glorification. That at the name of Jesus, this is in verse 11, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we need to understand that, that this confession that's going to happen, that Jesus is Lord, is not to be read simply as everyone's going to be doing it as an act of praise, of gratitude, of joy. The declaration at the end that Jesus is Lord is going to be the rightful identification of Jesus' proper place in the universe. And there will be people who are declaring and saying that Jesus is Lord through tears. When it says that every knee will bow, every tongue confess, it is that everyone, no matter how they saw Jesus in this lifetime, everyone will say that he is indeed Lord, whether they recognized it here or not.
That's the so then. Jesus is Lord. First point, bullet point. Uh, If you have your worship guide, feel free to take notes. I've left some blanks in there for you guys. First point is this. Christian obedience is a response to who God is and who he has already made us to be, not an attempt to earn something we already have. I know that's wordy, but it's such a good truth. Christian obedience is a response to who God is and who he has already made us to be, not an attempt to earn something we already have. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. So then, moving on, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So then, in response to the lordship of Jesus, obey. And I want to point out here that Paul is praising this church that he started, we read about it in the book of Acts, chapter 16, and he is writing back to praise them for their obedience. And he says very specifically, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now you're obeying much more even in my absence. Even while I'm not there, you guys are excelling and doing the things you ought to do, even though I, as your, as your, your founder, your leader, I am not there, and you guys are doing great. This is such a good word for us as a church. We are in the midst of, right now, about a year-long search for a lead pastor. Okay? And you know what? Maybe if we were honest, we'd say, yeah, I, I wish it hasn't taken this long. Or maybe I've been frustrated at the process. Let me tell you this. Your elders, Jorge, GR, Scott, they are fantastic, faithful, honorable men. And they are doing the right things to get not just a person here, but the right person here. Kayla, who's leading our search committee and the teams that she's in charge of, fantastic. I am so thrilled to have our new lead pastor here. The right lead pastor. Now, here's the thing. We are in a place where, um, yeah, maybe we have some, maybe we're kind of putting our involvement on hold. Here's the thing, you guys. I get to preach up here. Will I be excited when a new lead pastor comes? I'll be excited. I love to preach. I love the body more. And when that lead pastor comes and he takes up the mantle of preaching a bit more, I'm going to find another way to serve. Okay? For many of us, you might be feeling like, well, my involvement, I'm kind of putting it on hold. The elders didn't ask me to say this, by the way. I might be putting my involvement on hold because I just kind of want to see what happens next. Whoever it is that comes, whoever it is that, that, that steps up and becomes our lead pastor, don't expect them to say anything radically different about obedience, about faith, about life, about community than what we're already hearing. As, as if someone's going to come in and tell us something radically different about following Jesus than what the Bible already says and what we already know. Let me step off my podium here. Okay, we're back. Paul praises the Philippians for their obedience and faithfulness, even in the absence of him, as their spiritual leader. The only person, Christians, that your obedience is contingent upon is Jesus. 
And the Bible says very clearly about him that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, he praises them for their obedience, and he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is one of those New Testament phrases that has endured a lot of abuse over the years. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oftentimes we hear this and we think, uh, what we we translated it as um, is create your salvation or accomplish your salvation with fear and trembling, right? We we think of it in terms of, of, of causation, right? When Paul says, work out your salvation to these Christians, you need to be mindful of the fact that he is already speaking to Christians. He is speaking to people who are already saved. He's not saying, accomplish your salvation. He has already identified them as those who are being saved. So he can't possibly mean, accomplish your salvation with your works. What he does mean, however, is live it out. Walk it out. Show the proof of who you already are. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When I hear fear and trembling, I often think, you know, scary movie, you know, shivering in my boots kind of thing. Fear and trembling. What he's saying, this is a commandment, this is a warning. Hey, do it sober-mindedly. Right? There's a number of, of, of texts you can look at to kind of, kind of get a hint at this idea of, of fear and trembling. For a lot of us, you read Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, he talks about different seeds that the sower is scattering on the soil. And he talks about this second soil in Matthew 13, which is the sower throws seed on the soil. And immediately it springs up. It shows life. But when the sun comes, it scorches it. And because it had no roots, it withered away. I think for a lot of us, we think, man, am I, am I a second soil person? There's evidence of things on the surface. Do I actually have any roots? When things come, am I going to just shrivel up? Am I really saved? Or Matthew himself writes in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, um, you know, there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these good spiritual things in your name? And Jesus' verdict to those people at the end is, depart from me. I never knew you. I think for a lot of us, we think, Man, um, I go to church, I do these things, I I think I'm saved, um, but there is a sense of fear and trembling. Our faith should always be matched by our obedience in pursuing God. Work out, show the evidence of your faith. Walk in line with your convictions, walk in line with your new identity Christians, but do it soberly. Do it with fear and trembling. And as I said in week one of this series, you can't divorce verse 12 from verse 13. And verse 13 says this, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You are not left to do this on your own. This walking out your new identity in Christ is not something that is on your shoulders to do on your own, but it is God who is at work in you through his Holy Spirit to carry out these good deeds to show the evidence of who you already are in Christ. Now, for some of us, when we read that it is God who is at work in us, that God is sovereign, that God is in control, we often hear. 
some of our natural tendencies is to think, well, hey, if God's in control, if God's sovereign, if he is all-knowing, all-powerful, why do I have to do anything? I hear that question from students a lot. Why on earth do I have to do anything if God's in control? And, and, and the, the view that we often talk about in philosophy is this idea of fatalism. If fate is set, why do I need to do anything? Why do I need to read my Bible? Why do I need to share the gospel? Charles Spurgeon speaks to this. I love this. He says this, Some professors appear to have imbibed the notion, that is, drink the notion, that the grace of God is a kind of opium with which men may drug themselves into slumber, and their passion for strong doses of sleepy doctrine grows with that which it feeds on. God works in us, they say. Therefore, there is nothing for us to do. Classic Spurgeon here. Bad reasoning, false conclusion. God works, says the text, therefore we must work out because God works in. The New Testament writer who most often highlights the sovereignty of God, the fact that it's God working in us as believers to produce obedience and faithfulness, is the Apostle Paul. And so the one who probably seems like he has the most opportunity to fall into this, this role of fatalism, that God's in control, I don't need to do anything, is him. But look what he says here, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The guy who most strongly espouses the high view of God's sovereignty, of his control, of his power in the life of the believer, doesn't just say, therefore, I don't have to do anything. He actually says, I labored more than all of them. Fatalism. It makes sense at some level in our mind. It is not put forth in the scripture. There is a role that God is sovereign, but we also have a responsibility. And how do we make sense of this tension? This idea that God's in control, but it's also us, that we have a part to play. There's one person who I think can probably paint the best picture of this for us. Michael Phelps. You thought I was going to say Jesus, huh? Come on, church. Michael Phelps. Um, you know, th this is a credit to our teaching team. I didn't have this illustration in mind when I came in on Tuesday to our meeting. Uh, we have a great team. I, I love uh, how... Our ideas can get honed in and refined uh, by a collection of people, men and women, who are speaking into this process of teaching. Michael Phelps, greatest, most decorated Olympian in history, 28 total Olympic medals, 23 gold. Hurts my neck just looking at it, right? <laughs> you know, 60 Minutes did a piece on Michael Phelps a while back where they looked at his training schedule, his diet, all the things that Michael Phelps needs to do in order to be Michael Phelps. And it's preposterous how much he does, how, how regimented, how disciplined, how specific the calorie counts are, his training, how he has to swim, all this stuff. And you think, wow, that's a lot. But you know what? Not everybody, if they submitted themselves to that external, self-motivated, rigorous process, is going to win 28 Olympic medals. One of the guys that I get to disciple on campus with our ministry with the Navigators is a friend named Austin. Now, you might not know who I'm talking about, but if you saw that guy who was standing here playing his guitar earlier, that's Austin. 
I, I actually walked in this morning to get, get my microphone set up early, and I walked in and I thought, whoa, Austin's leading with the ukulele today. Then I realized, wait a second, it's Austin. That's a guitar. Austin could, could, could adopt Michael Phelps' diet. Austin could uh, op- adopt his training routine, do everything that Michael Phelps does. And how many gold medals would Austin win? <laughs> you guys can say it. The answer is zero. Zero medals for Austin, okay? He, he, he would win zero medals because why is that? Because there's a part of what makes Michael Phelps Michael Phelps that is not part of what he does. In that same piece, they also looked at so many of the things about him that he doesn't have control of that helps make him the world's greatest swimmer of all time. Whether it's his torso length, the size of his hands, the way his joints work, you name it, these have all come together outside of his decision about his training process to make him the best swimmer. Now, if Michael swims, Phelps, with all those uh, physical attributes, didn't do his training, didn't do this regimented plan, didn't do all these workouts, how many gold medals would he win? Zero. Okay? There's a part of which Michael Phelps has done nothing and has been equipped very well to be an effective Olympic swimmer. But there's also a part that he plays to become who we know him to be. It's not a perfect analogy, but you guys get the point. Continuing on, it says, Do all things, verse 14, without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. Prove yourselves to be. What does that mean? Do all these things so that you would prove yourselves to be. These characteristics that we're going to look at in a minute do not make you a child of God, but they are indicative of a person who is a child of God. He's saying these characteristics are proof of what you already are. When you see a tree, and let's say in the spring, I don't know if this is the right season when this happens, but that tree produces an apple. You pick that apple and you say, hey, now this is an apple tree. No, it was always an apple tree. The apple that produced it is simply it proving what it already is. Okay? My daughter, Ellie. Ellie doesn't become a Nelson when she finally begins to adopt and take on the characteristics and attitude that we want to mark our family. She's always a Nelson. And as she grows up, her identity of who she already is will inform the sort of person and characteristics and attitude that she takes on. She doesn't become a Nelson when she starts exercising empathy and compassion and love and faithfulness. She's always been a Nelson. Prove yourselves to be does not mean turn yourself into. And a few English translations of Philippians 2.15 have been pretty helpful, unhelpful rather. They say things like, so that you may become a child of God. That is to say, do something so that you may become a child of God. Let me be very clear. Here's how you become a child of God. John 1.12 says this, but as many as received him, received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, 
even to those who believe in his name. Receive Jesus, we hear all the time in, in, in Western Christianity. We have to receive Jesus. What does that mean? Oftentimes that just takes the tone of, well, I, I need to um, a- acknowledge a, a, a doctrinal point that Jesus is Lord or that Jesus is Savior. Hey, I'm saved. It's as easy as just saying I agree. When the Bible speaks in John 1 of receiving Jesus, it is to, as if you are receiving a guest into your home on their terms. I welcome him as both Lord and Savior, right? It's not just agreeing in word to some doctrinal statement about his identity. Receive Jesus, believe in his name. I was formerly a children's and youth pastor, and so often uh, we would be sharing the gospel message of Jesus, and we'd, we'd, we'd say things like, who wants to receive Jesus? And we, we'd quote maybe Romans 10.9, you know, it says, you know, that if you uh, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you'd have a kid that says, hey, that sounds great. Uh, Jesus is Lord. And I believe in my heart. I'm a Christian, you know. Is it that easy? Or, or, or is belief something more than just saying it? Absolutely. The Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians 12.3 that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It is only through the Holy Spirit, Spirit's working in their heart that someone can truly confess and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so for us, if, if our good works don't earn our salvation and make us a child of God, if our working out our, 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 our salvation with fear and trembling is not accomplishing our salvation, but instead it is just living it out, something that's already true of us, why is it that we obey Christians, discovery, friends, family? Tim Keller has been so helpful for me in this, and, and the way he, he, he puts it is this way. There's two kind of motivations that lead to Christian obedience. And when I say Christian obedience, I mean compassion, charity, uh, spending time reading the word, following the commands of God. He, he says this. One motivation, which I think is familiar to almost all of us, is I obey. Therefore, because of my obedience, I am accepted by God. Okay? I obey, therefore, I'm accepted by God. Which stands opposed to what I would call a gospel motivation, a true biblical motivation, which is I'm accepted by God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Therefore, I obey. You guys see the difference, right? These two motivations create two identical-looking people externally who are doing all the same things, reading their Bible, sharing the gospel, living and discipling among the lost, you name it, and yet they are doing it for very different reasons. One is so that they will be accepted by God. God will like them more. The other person does it because of what Jesus has already done for them. And in their joy, they obey. Our first bullet point again, Christian obedience should be a response to who God is and who he has already made us to be, not an attempt to earn something we already have. All right, let's look ahead. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. Do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world 
holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run nor toil in vain. Second bullet point, Christian obedience is born out of gratitude and leads to our joy. If the first bullet point is true, that we we obey out of who we already are, a place of gratitude, our obedience also leads to joy. I think for many of us, as we think about living and, and obeying, we might say, if we were honest, yeah, our obedience, maybe it's born more out of guilt or compulsion. And it doesn't lead to joy. Maybe it leads to a, a sense of, of better standing with God. Or maybe it leads to an absence of guilt. Or maybe it leads to a sense of entitlement before God. God, I've obeyed you, so now bless me. Obedience in the church is so often seen almost as like a dirty word. We have these words, obedience, submission. And I think our natural posture is we, we bristle. Ugh. Because so for so many of us, obedience, we've only seen it through the lens of power dynamics. Submission, we've only seen it through the lens of power dynamics. And, and we haven't actually had someone to obey that we have a sense is fully for us, that loves us and is deeply, deeply longing for our good. Whether it's in a friendship context, a teacher context, a marriage context, we have almost a negative stance towards obedience and submission because we haven't had good earthly examples. And so for us, our obedience, the way we think about doing things for God, obeying the commandments, almost always, it seems, gets cashed out in terms of, well, I have to, I ought to, I should read my Bible more, I should pray more. I should go to church on Sunday morning. That's the language we often... And what's that born out of? How often do we say, I get to read my Bible. I want to pray. These two statements reflect these two different structures. If our acceptance by God is contingent upon what we ought to be doing, of course we're going to say, I should, I ought, I have to. But if it's born out of what Jesus has already done, it's I get to, I want to, praise God. I get to share the gospel with my friends. Jesus said the night before he was crucified, John 15, 10, and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Commandments and joy going together? Are you kidding me? These are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples before he's crucified, saying, I've commanded these things to you. Why? So that your joy might be full, complete. There's some great hymns that really get to this point. Back in the late 1700s, William Cooper wrote a hymn called Love Constraining to Obedience. And buried at the end of this hymn in the sixth stanza, he says this, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. To see Christ for who he is and for what he's done takes our posture as slaves, have to, ought to, should, must, 
to a child where duty becomes choice. I get to, I want to, I freely choose this because of what I know to be true about Jesus. Another hymn, Joseph Swain, Come Ye Souls by Sin Afflicted. Similar time period, third stanza, he writes this. Blessed are the eyes that see him. Blessed the ears that hear his voice. Blessed are the souls that trust him and in him alone rejoice. His commandments then become their happy choice. Wouldn't that be great for us if we could actually read the commandments and say, yes, I joyfully, happily choose this. Not because I, I think it earns me anything or it's going to be because it's going to decrease my guilt that maybe I have. I love these old hymns because they're so rooted in the word and these gospel-centered truths. I'm going to give you a freebie today. Worth, worth the price of admittance. This is the, uh, this is the Tom Nelson expert guide to creating a popular contemporary worship song, all right? So if you really want to rise up the charts, take notes. Here's what you do. You pick four chords in a major key. You set it to 4-4 four, four timing. After the bridge, you need to have a long buildup to a really big heart-tugging crescendo, resolving in a major key. At some point in the song, you need to uh, refer to God or an attribute of God using a natural disaster, a tidal wave, a hurricane. As a general rule, you want to stay away from topics like God's wrath, justice, holiness. Those don't sell very well. If you want to talk about human unworthiness before the Lord, use the term brokenness, not sinfulness, so as to potentially remove any sort of, you know, personal accountability from the relationship. Hopefully, maybe cast ourselves as a victim. Definitely, you want to jump on the personal empowerment train. Make sure you refer to yourself or Christians as brave or fierce, radical, revolutionary, you do these things and your song will sell like hotcakes. You will rise up the charts and you will get plenty of airtime on the radio. Incidentally, your song will be almost unrecognizable to many of these early hymn writers whose lives were so saturated in the word. People like Cowper, John Wesley, John Newton, Ann Steele, men and women who loved the Lord, who spent their lives studying the word who saw Jesus as their only comfort in this life. These hymns give us a window of some great gospel truths. And so when we read Swain saying, his commandments then become their happy choice, for many of us, our responsiveness to what God has done has not resulted in a happy choice. It's resulted in drudgery and toil and labor. I have to, I should, I ought to. And so that leads to the question, then, what should obedience look like? We talked about lordship of Jesus last, last week, giving us a model of humility and unity. Jeff did a great job. So what, then, does our obedience actually look like? And Paul goes here, and I'm not going to spend too much time on these individual things. Verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. A little later on, he says to do it above reproach in the midst of of a crooked and perverse generation. A little further on, 
among whom you appear as lights in the world. You're a light of the world. Part of your obedience you live out is that you live visibly among people who don't know Jesus. You are a light of the world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, back to Matthew 5, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the life consists in all righteousness and goodness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You appear as lights in the world. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life. What does that mean? Holding fast, some translations say holding forth the word of life. It means this. You know the word. You're diligent to know God's words his written and spoken commandments. Psalm 119, 9 through 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my, sar- with all my heart, David says, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory. That is, in the end of all things, I will have a reason to boast. I will have a reason to rejoice. I will have a reason to be happy because I was holding fast the word of life because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I will have reason to glory because my life was not in vain. I did not run in vain. I did not toil in vain. My good works as born out of who I am in Christ was not in vain. And then in verse 17, he says this, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. He is now speaking of his present circumstances. Remember, he is writing this from Rome during an imprisonment, and he refers in the present tense to himself being poured out as a drink offering. That is, an offering that would go alongside a burnt offering. He's like, my life is being poured out for you in my imprisonment. And it's remarkable that he says, as I'm being poured out, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. If there was a person who had reason to say, I'm not that happy, I'm kind of miserable, it was Paul. He's isolated in Rome, desperately trying to get news of these churches who he has planted. And he says, my life is being poured out. I am imprisoned. I don't know what's next for me. Maybe it's death. I rejoice. And I want you guys to rejoice and to share your joy with me. Kevin spoke uh, the second half of Philippians 1. He said, for, you know, Paul writes, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is joy. To die is joy. I'm being poured as a drink offering, yet I rejoice. Again, that second bullet point. Christian obedience is born out of gratitude and leads to our joy. 
practical question for us. When was the last time obedience, following the commands of God, doing the things God desires of you was a joy to you? Not just something that you you entered into, maybe out of compulsion or guilt or At this point in the letter, Paul transitions from speaking uh, very broadly about Christian obedience to the whole to talking about two specific individual people, Timothy and a guy named Epaphroditus, okay? Here's what he says about Timothy, Philippians 2, starting in 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Look how he describes Timothy. He describes Timothy as someone who he has no one else like, someone of kindred spirit. A little further down, like a child serving his father, so Timothy was to Paul. In 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul refers to Timothy as my child. You, therefore, my child, be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus. What we see with Paul and Timothy is a very a vertical relationship. There is no one in the New Testament that you could make an argument for that Paul invested in and poured more time and energy and attention to than Timothy. Paul invested vertically into Timothy, okay, so that Timothy would then invest into others. Do you have someone like that in your life? Do you have a Timothy in your life? Or maybe you, do you have a Paul in your life? Do you have someone that you're actively coming alongside to help them walk with the Lord, to teach them all the things that he has commanded us, as it says in that great commission in Matthew 28? Do you have someone who's actively looking out for your best interests? Maybe someone older, maybe someone a little further along in their faith. If so, praise God. If not, why not? Why not? There are young men and young women in this room that need you to speak into their life. Younger men and women, there are older, more mature people in this room who have plenty of things that they could share with you about walking with the Lord. If so, if you're doing this, great. If not, why not? Why not? Then we have Epaphroditus. We have Timothy, kind of this vertical relationship with Paul, my son in the faith, like a child serving his father. Then we have Epaphroditus. We don't know anything about Epaphroditus outside the book of Philippians. But what we do know we come from, comes from chapter 4. It says this, Paul writing, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. We know that Epaphroditus was a courier, a messenger from Philippi who came to Rome to deliver gifts, provisions for Paul. And we know that while he was there, he got really sick, almost to the point of death. The very end of Philippians 2 talks about this. But look how Paul describes Epaphroditus. 
verse 25, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He paints a picture of a very horizontal relationship. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. Someone who is coming alongside him in this mission that he has. What's the mission? That people would know Jesus. It's our same goal for this series, that we would joyfully let go of everything for the sake of knowing him. There's this horizontal component between Paul and Epaphroditus. Again, brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. Do you have an Epaphroditus? Do you have men and women who you feel like you are coming alongside and partnering together in this mission? You're not yourselves by yourselves, Christians. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. If so, praise God, who are they? If not, why not? Our last point is this, and we're going to wrap up. I told you we weren't going to make it. If you don't have a Timothy in your life, and if you don't have an Epaphroditus in your life, it's probably because you don't have a mission in your life. At least not a mission that requires them. Paul understood that what he was trying to accomplish, what he felt God had commanded of all Christians, to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded them, there is no way that he could be faithful to that command to the church all by himself. He needed men coming alongside him and women coming alongside him, and he understood that he needed to be passing off what he understood about the Lord to generations after him, to people like Timothy. We are no different. Jesus hasn't changed. The mission hasn't changed. The purpose of Discovery Church hasn't changed. Church, city, world. It's written on the downtown offices. You don't have a Timothy in your life, get one. Start praying for one. Start asking people here in church if anyone's discipling them. If you feel like you want someone to come alongside you, be courageous. Start talking to people. Look around. Are there people who are doing life with you? Are there people who are in this mission with you? Are you in a discovery group? We need Timothys. We need Pauls. We need Epaphroditus's. Well, Good thing we have a reading plan on our app. Why don't you guys read the, the rest of Philippians 2 this week and the rest of the book, by the way, all the way. Read it this week. Our obedience stems from what God has already done for us, born out of gratitude and leading to a full, complete, further joy. And let that joy compel you to minister with people under people, serving people who are younger than you, maybe less mature than you. Church, I would, love that to see, I would love to see that be true so that when our new lead pastor comes, he shows up and thinks, whoa, this is awesome. This is amazing. All this is going on? Praise God. I guess I'll just focus on preaching and praying. Good. The worship team is going to come up. We're going to pray. 